It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to Mud 79. I'm Fearless Fred Kennedy, the creator of this totally original and in no way authorized Star Wars fan fiction podcast. If you're listening to this, you probably love Star Wars. I do too, and have always dreamed about telling my own story in a galaxy far, far away. A story that's less about the Jedi Temple and more about those who were on the front lines. A boots-on-the-ground story about how those living in the galaxy survive the horrors of war. That's what Mud79 is all about. If you're new to the show, welcome, but please be aware this is a series. So if you don't want to be totally lost, start from the beginning with episode one. You don't want to be a stormtrooper. This is episode 32. Let's blow this thing and go home. The strike team has made their way through the enemy tunnels and managed to avoid any major fighting until they found the main command center, a room filled with multiple ARC troopers and hardline militants. Purge Trooper Blue is lost in action, but Captain Largo believes he knows where to find their main target, the infamous sniper Jado Rast, who hides behind a blast door protecting the Sesher compound's main power core. What's waiting for the mutters behind that blast door? Will they find Jado Rast? And even if they do, how will they reach the Hatfield shuttle? Let's find out. With a sliding blast door like this, you line up along the center because the doors open from the center and as each half recedes into the wall, you spring forward creating a distanced target for the enemy. You're spread out, and it becomes more difficult for them to bring you down. In practice, I'm not sure how effective it is, but this is what they taught us, and everything else had kept me alive so far, so this is what we did. No give, either. The second the latches steamed and the doors began pulling back, we went in. I was second to her left and saw how clean she was with that A280. Dropped two loader droids before Mondi and Kyra were even able to get a shot off. I came at the same time Husto did. This was a very target-rich environment. And they were not expecting us. We were unloading. After the initial deluge, they were returning fire. I scanned across the room looking for cover, which was sparse. In the center of the chamber was a single rebuilt ion drive core from a Venator-class Star Destroyer. It was positioned on its side, and the roof had been adjusted and shaped by mining drills to allow hookups for all the appropriate engine controls. 
The actual control and readout panels were on the right side and offered solid protection. The only cover on the left was a distribution module for the power cabling, which ran through a hole dug into the wall on the side of the room and then extended upwards to the roof, branching into two different openings with two different clusters of cables heading somewhere. There was a minimum of 20 loader droids in that room and another dozen plus engineers, all of them with protective face shields to shelter themselves from the wisps of heat the ion drive gave off during the shutdown process. They had sidearms too, and they weren't shy with the trigger. We moved in fast and heavy. I tucked in beside the cabling module, fired rounds in bursts. I saw some return fire targeting the right side, but I couldn't see where it was coming from. I leaned out, saw an engineer, took my shot. First few bolts missed, impacting into the heavy support girders. Sparks flew. I fired again, not really concerning myself with cover. A low-grade blaster bolt ricocheted right ahead, red-hot sparks of steel flying into my face. I winced and rolled back in behind the junction box. The droids had built-in wrist blasters and were steadily advancing. It looked like those hollow reels from the Clone Wars. A steady, artificial walk forward, arms raised, shot after shot. It would have been a great time to throw out a few debts, but being atomized by the ion core just a few meters away wasn't really on my list of things to do. I popped over the top of my cover and pulled off a lucky burst, taking one of the droids in the hips. It toppled forward and someone else finished it off on the way down. More rounds hit nearby, saw an engineer falling to cover behind a support beam, but I had a clear view of their back and pulled the trigger. They crumpled and I moved on for another target. There were three loader droids getting close to the control panel. I fired wild, distracting them before dropping back behind my cover. I slid down while hearing an explosion of blaster fire and that telltale sound of droid plating being punched through with streaks of plasma. Normally, it was easy to figure out who was shooting at who based on the sounds of the blasters. But we were all using Rebel gear, so that was out. I waited for the lull in fire. That's when I'd come up again. Check my clip had enough juice for three bursts, then I'd reload. Took a deep breath and popped up. Scan, only to see Largo running ahead, pistol shifting from one fallen enemy to another, plugging the droids as they still twitched. Get their masks off, look for the target, let's go. I slung my rifle and did as asked. 
I just whipped back the mask on the closest engineer, a dark-skinned human male, and Mondi started yelling. Houston's down. There was a certain level of comedy to know that Husto, the guy who always rubbed our nose in it when we got injured, was gonna be spending a few days floating in the tank. So I just kept inspecting the enemy wounded, hoping I'd be the one to find target A. I only looked over because I was getting close to where Cairo was busy working on Husto, specifically his neck. He was shot in the neck, and I knew right away that wasn't good. Husto, the Terracossi champion of the 934th Legion, was in a bad way. Mondi saw it happen. She saw the shot that brought him down. It was a droid. I saw him roll out of cover, and there were two loaders right there. Hit him once in the chest, and then again in the neck. Clean right below his jawline and tore through. He was right beside me. He tried to shout, out of shock, I guess, but the neck was cooked. The blaster bolt actually took out part of his spine. That's what killed him. Kyra was prepping for a tracheotomy, but he was inspecting the wound and noticed the singes on the back of Husto's neck. The twitching was just nerves. He's gone. I was standing close to some of the fallen enemy when I heard that. I wondered what it meant, what we would do. That was answered when Red came over and started rifling through Husto's med satchel. He's got a Bacta respirator, doesn't he? Kyra already had it out and handed it over. I don't think that'll help. The shot tore up part. It's not for him. We found Target A and need to get her evac'd now. She's been hit clean in the chest. She's alive, but I don't know how much longer she has. Then she ran over to where the captain was leaning over a slight body. Red checked the target's vitals and cinched the respirator tight, adjusting the back to flow. The captain nodded to her and began an inspection of the drive core. Let's move, people. We're on a timer. He was placing charges on the side of the core housing, punching away at the switches, and on the last keystroke, they lit up. The lights flickered off and on as they primed. Well, now we are. What about Sergeant Houston? Leave him. Cairo looked like he was about to say something, but brushed his hands over our medic's eyes and laid his head down to rest. Let's move, 79. He held us in a glance as he got up. There was an element of the LT there that he was looking out for us. He shot his chin forward and waited for us to get moving. I remember having a moment where I looked down at the body, but knowing the way those situations go, I don't know if that actually even happened. Those things are seldom as poetic in the moment as they are in hindsight. We hit the catwalk, moving quickly, our feet clunking along the metal grating. Red had the target slung over her shoulder. They were out cold, hands in binders. The back to respirator strapped to her face. 
and then we started heading back down the catwalk. So we followed, leaving Husto behind, his body still twitching in the flickering light of the ion drive. The forced labor down by the fifth roots were hiding behind the hydroponic vats, while the droids prodded them with stun batons. They weren't programmed to do anything but keep the callers working the plants. They wouldn't even acknowledge anything else as an issue. I wanted to head down and free the workers, but there was no time. We were leaving our dead behind, and that wasn't something we ever did before. So the odds of Largo agreeing to liberate prisoners? No, that was off the table. We were making an exit in an enemy ship that we had yet to steal. The whole aspect of the mission was flooding back and I began thinking, how can this get worse? The crew back in the main control room were prepared for evac. They'd moved the loose furniture around the room to form a loose barricade to the side of the door we'd entered through initially. It was positioned out of direct fire from the entrance and forced the enemy to come in from the side with no real cover. Exposing them to a barrage of plasma every step they took. They were still prepping the position when we charged in on them. Three enemy combatants came in from the shuttle bay, but we managed to convince them the dead were from a rival separatist faction that had infiltrated our ranks. A weak ruse, but they dropped their guard long enough for us to neutralize. Hefspar had taken charge and was the first to speak to Captain Largo when we got back. Here's your data core, sir. It's loaded pretty thick, and I'm 99% sure it's got some viral files floating around. The security protocols they were employing were way too lax. I wouldn't trust it. Good work. I'll ensure our techs give it a proper scan. And one more thing, Captain. They mentioned the evac is mostly complete. A few smaller shuttles are left, but they also mentioned another hangar with heavy cruisers that was causing delays. But we didn't learn anything specific. No time. The captain nodded while placing the data core in an inside pocket of his jacket. Then let's get moving. The Hatfields. We all know its location? He was focused more on Hefspar and Arkham. They were the speeder pilots after all, but everyone was looking at each other and discussing where they'd seen it on the way in. Essentially the exact opposite side of the shuttle pad. Then Largo motioned us forward. We hustled back past the enemy barracks, out the equipment room, and reached the balcony without even knowing how many seshers were waiting for us. But we got a decent hint when they opened fire as we came down the steps to the main level. They were trying to pin us where we had minimal cover, trap us in the relative open. Largo was right at the front, flanked by Red with Arkham and Hefspar close behind. The rest of us were lined up near the rear in a loose column. I was at the very back, with Mondi just ahead. 
Before we came under fire, my eyes were on the A280's clip readout. I was checking to see how much charge was left, the usage of ammo, all that. The initial barrage startled me. I was expecting something, but it still took me by surprise. I flailed backwards. My feet came out from under me. It was like a slapstick comedy. But they kicked Mondi forward as I fell onto my ass. I didn't see what happened because my eyes were closed and everything was moving so fast. She tumbled down the steps, miraculously coming to rest behind a burnt-out grab dolly. I later joked that I probably saved her life because my elegantly executed combat maneuver got her out of the line of fire. She never saw it like that because during her fall, she broke her ankle. But at least she had a safe spot to writhe in. She was so low, it was hard for the enemy to even see her, let alone lock in on her. All of us were scrambling for cover. There was a stack of discarded fuel barrels heading towards the main bay. It was the only significant shelter between us and the speeders, and the enemy fire was starting to pick it apart. The face of the Durasteel barrels were glowing from the repeated blaster impacts. Largo didn't concern himself with caution. He was on the clock, a madman. Reminded me of the LT and how he consistently took the initiative in every encounter we faced. He was sprinting to the speeders and one-handing his pistol, targeted wildfire towards enemy positions with very little rhyme or reason. I was laying flat as I could on the stone steps, gradually sliding down on my back making as few movements as possible, doing my best to remain invisible while watching what everyone else was doing. See, when you're in the rear, most of your targeting is cued off the people up front. You can learn from what they're doing, give yourself an edge, and make yourself look much more tactically sound than you actually are. You just need to pay attention and register what you're seeing. I flipped my scope on. Murray was at the bottom of the stairs, curled up next to some toppled pillar. Looked like it used to be part of the balcony, maybe an arch. Rocky fragments and shards were spraying as enemy bolts ricocheted off the sides. He would yell at Mondi to stay low, while popping out to return fire. I scanned up at where he was aiming, a twillet with a long-barreled blaster. Had a Blastet core, or something very similar. And he was flanked by a Miri Allen with a slug thrower. Well-maintained, accurate. It was ripping into the barrels between us and the speeders. I could see Sergeant Kyra over there tucked in beside Red and our prisoner, who was still out of it. I got behind my scope and 
fired two shots at the Twi'lek and two more at the Miri Allen. I hit the Twi'lek, but I didn't see anything connect with the Miri Allen. The enemy fire stopped, though, and that got a smirk from Murray. Fuck you, Kwai. You show off with your fancy Sesher scope. I shimmied down the steps and got behind him. Told Mondi to head for the barrels while I gave him cover. Murray took off with a leap. Mondi tried to get to her feet, but her ankle was a mess and she stumbled forward. Then started half crawling, using her good leg to push forward. I was scanning the catwalk, looking for anything that could start problems. Didn't see anyone. Then a slug grazed Mondi's side and even chewed its way across her back. That Miri Allen up top had moved and was still on the trigger. I swore under my breath. I felt like a failure. I missed the shot and couldn't find it, and Mondi paid for it. She tumbled forward with a stream of profanity that came off as extreme even in the filthiest of mess halls. Then she rolled and winced. I dropped low behind the broken pillar and kept scanning. I saw something, not a shadow, more of a disturbance of the light from below the gridwork of the catwalk, the way the light reflected off the metal. Then, like pure serendipity, I watched the Miri Allen come up with that slug thrower. He was good, coming up poised with a lock on whatever he was shooting, staring down the scope, mouth closed, breathing through his nose, calm, ice. And so was I, and I fired. Watched the bolt rip into the base of his neck, right at the shoulder. The power on this A280 was so juiced, I think I may have taken his head off. I barely registered that he still managed to get a shot off before I tagged him. I was riding the adrenaline as I looked over in slow motion. Saw Murray get shot. Slug took the back of his skull off. I watched it watched him fall. Mondi told me he came back, grabbed her by the jacket, trying to pull her forward, get her to the barrels to cover, but he lost his grip and stumbled backward. Then he was out in the open, and a second later, he was hit. She saw it too. We downed a lot of Kang Tree, the night she told me that. There was no weird emotional moment then when we were in it. I was very aware of my situation, what was happening. I just ran forward. I knew we had a gap to get Monty to cover. I knew we were still a few clicks below the surface. I knew we were surrounded by Sesher assholes trying to pump us full of plasma and slugs. And there was an ion core prepped to blow any second. I got up and ran to Mondi. I was pulling her to her feet 
when Speeder Cat slid up in front. Get in, asshole! Wolf was right behind. Sergeant Hefspar yelling at everyone tucked in behind barrels to load up. Someone take the gun. We had Red up top on Cat's e-web, chewing the catwalks apart. I threw Mondi into the back like a sack of empty canteens. I muttered an apology while hopping in and shooting. I wasn't even shooting at anything, just targeting spots I assumed an enemy would use as a high. Spots that made the most sense. You run enough simulations, you have enough encounters with hostiles, you almost predict what will happen. When you're not actively targeting an enemy shooter, you just go through the motions. Arkham hit the accelerator and we zipped through the bay, unloading on anything that moved. That mad dash for an exit. And it's a separate mentality from everything that happened before. It's really hard to explain. I've talked about these experiences with other mutters, even other seshers from Cestin and the other theaters of conflict. And all of us have this habit of compartmentalizing everything. That run and gun trip through the shuttle bay was wild. I burned through my whole clip, but I don't think I actually hit anything. I was really just spraying at blurs on catwalks and behind crates. Red and Kyra were doing damage, though. Up on the big guns, they weren't even targeting Seshers, but every shuttle they could get a bead on, they dug into. I think, if I'm being honest, I didn't expect to get out of there. I expected to die. Even without being aware of it, I was drenched in fatalism at this point in my life and wanted to go out with a whirl of light and sound. And sure they knew we'd been there. That we came into their house and trashed the place. Wolf's PR-20 came across looking like the beam cannon with its rate of fire. Didn't really do much to the ship's plating, but a few shots into a shuttle's thruster coil and it wouldn't be getting far. Cat's E-Web, though, that was punching through armor easy. Especially with small craft like these ad hoc fly-by-night numbers the Seshers were using. When we get near the hatch, be careful. I don't want any of our fire touching that thing, understood? He had great timing, too, because we rolled up to the Hatfield's pad a second after he finished talking. The Hatfield was a small freighter, more akin to a shuttle. A fair bit bigger than a lardy, but small for something made for interplanetary flight. It did have thick armor and a massive engine for its size. It looked fast. I didn't really know shuttles, still don't, but it had all the hallmarks of a smuggler craft. 
which fit the bill for someone working with Sessures. Red coated the few Sessures attempting to load cargo with a fresh barrage of plasma. The heavy fire tearing clean through anyone she tagged. Could still smell the cooked flesh. A burning stink. There were others, different species. They had blaster rifles shot back, but there was this momentum. We had a wave behind us. The whole crew was running on a frenzy, a cocktail of chems and adrenaline. This was our ship now. We were gonna take it, storm it, overrun the enemy, clockwork. I leapt off the speeder on instinct. I assumed taking a ship that size would be similar to taking a storeroom in a building or a prefab. And that was something I was familiar with. I threw away my clip and popped in a new one, shouting that I'd need backup, then took my position on the right side of the ship's cargo door. I don't remember if there was any blaster fire around me, if anyone was shooting directly at me. I was probably aware at the time, but the only thing that still registers is this memory of desperation. Knowing we needed this ship to escape. Largo was running over. I remember Kyra was on Wolf's PR-20, and Hefspar was at the wheel, shifting from side to side, running a net of defense, slicing through any pursuers. Take it, quiet. I've got you. His pistol was high in front, so I rounded the corner and went in. There were three twilling. They were scrambling. When things move that fast, they're all just figures, shapes, targets. I popped the first, a male with a peach complexion. Three rounds right in the chest. He had black markings on his leku. I was turning the rifle on the Sesher immediately to his left when the other Twilik, a third, a female with dark blue skin, shot them in the back with their pistol. I knew her, I knew that Twilik. There was recognition. It's about time, I've been waiting for hours. Largo came up from behind me. Stay the trigger, Corporal, this is Siphon. I lowered my rifle, still trying to piece together what was happening. Go help your squad mates, Trooper. I'll prime the engines. Hefspar was carrying Mondi, and Red had the prisoner over her shoulder. While Arkham and Kyra were in the rear in a staged retreat, burning through ammunition. I saw some Seshers springing along the catwalks and fired in their direction. I'm pretty sure I hit one, but there was no time to our crew were boarding the Hatfield while Largo was taking pot shots from the back of the cargo door. The engines kicked in and the ship lurched. I'd just gotten my footing on the cargo ramp, grabbed a random support cable to stabilize myself, 
which kept me from falling out the back end as we started pulling up. That cargo door came up fast, and you could still hear the blaster fire outside while we lifted off. I dropped my rifle and took a spot on the floor beside Mondi. Hefspar was over Topper, treating the wound on her side. The Deveronian emptied a small satchel of first aid gear and, and hosed Mondi down with a sputtering stream of Bacta. Everyone, hold on. Things are gonna get bumpy. I'll need someone on the gun. Cutting up. To say things got wild is an understatement. You heard the quad cannon on the roof light up as Siphon spun the shuttle on a loop around the bay. Red sowing chaos with a healthy dumping of heavy fire on the enemy. Then we pulled up into one of the tunnels that led to the surface. I was in the dark, literally and figuratively. The ship's interiors went down, so it was near pitch black there. There was dim light coming back towards us from the cockpit, the illumination from the instruments, but not much else. Then we were dropping and accelerating and rolling. I held on to Mondi with my left to keep her stable, while my right was still holding onto the cargo netting on the side of the hold. Hefspar was on the other side, doing the same, with every muscle tensed as we bounced around like ragdolls. I felt for Mondi, but she was on a fresh dose of pain meds and wasn't even making much sense. I remember feeling jealous because at this point, my pain meds were really starting to wear off. Or at least I was noticing and my shoulder felt like it was being torn apart. The grinding and crunching from inside the joint. Even with the pain, I remember being more nervous than I was at almost any other time during the mission. Maybe it was the pain getting me nervous. Or maybe it was knowing things were entirely out of my hands. No matter what had happened, one wrong move on the stick from whoever was flying this thing, we were done. If the enemy scored even one lucky shot and sent us grinding up against a cave wall, we'd be toast. It was a total crapshoot from here on in, and I was aware. But we held on, the whole team, quiet, in the dark clenching our stomachs with every roll and lurch. Then, light. The whole cabin lit up in daylight from the cockpit above us. Brace! She hit the accelerators wide open and all of us slid back. I was in a full body flex, feeling my pulse through the pain in my shoulder. Mondi puked everywhere, namely all over me, who was the closest to her, keeping her held tight against the floor, just wishing we were done. But that was it. 
that was the last bit of excitement we had during this mission. We tore straight into orbit, and that was wild. The quiet, that immediate sense of calm. I hadn't been off-world since we landed the previous year. Close to two years, now that I did the math. I caught a glimpse out the window. I always loved that view. I'm a surface kid for sure, but the view from off-world is always a nice one for putting things into perspective. We docked with a command ship in orbit. One of the four Arcaton's class light cruisers. We were unloaded and attended to by Navy medics. Allowed to shower, given some fresh gray, and then we were unceremoniously loaded onto a waiting lardy and flown back down to the surface. Even Mondi, who was the most severely wounded, was put on board with us like it was no big deal. They just pumped her full of meds and sent a medical droid at her side to ensure she was kept stable before she was transported to a proper healthcare facility on the surface. We didn't go back to the hotel, though. Nope. Learned on the Arcton's class that that phase of the war was over, effective immediately. For the 934th Legion, at least, the Western Theater was officially in cleanup mode. Nearly all of our company outposts were being decommissioned. The last few operational were being taken over by the 11416th as they were handed mops to clear out and survey the remaining echoes. The 79th platoon and the rest of the 20th company were being reassigned along with our entire legion in preparation for the next phase of the Seston IV conflict, the Eastern Front. We wound up being dropped at a sprawling compound in the Eastern Plains, a hundred clicks south of the Denmark Sea. I need to stress, this was not the jungle anymore. This was an open plain, a low, moderately flat plateau, light shrubs and scrawny wind-blown trees, Mostly tall grasses. We're talking two or three meters easy. It was an expanse of nothing. Low rolling hills, the only real geographical feature. We built a loosely fortified camp, meaning a field with over 10,000 Imperials and row upon row of prefabs. There was a light force field marking the perimeter and a trench line out a few meters past that with Durawee bagging, which we'd been assigned to patrol at least once a week, even though there was nothing in any direction as far as you could see. 
We put up some anti-aircraft towers too, but none of our defenses were built to last, which meant we wouldn't be here for a very long time. Something would be coming down the pipes. They could deny it, but anyone who wasn't fresh gray sniffed it all out. We wound up staying to the first few weeks of winter when the snow was coming down and the wind blew in from the open sea to the north. Not the gusts you'd get in the mountains, prolonged waves of wind that would knock you over. Had to reinforce some of the prefabs when their walls started caving in. There were two full divisions of infantry from the 934th Legion. But the main camp was also home to multiple TIE fighter wings, bomber squadrons, always coming and going. The place was a hub of activity. We also had more armored units than I'd ever seen before, even in Flume Bay. Not just the walkers and sabers, but hundreds of beefed up land speeders. We learned what the speeders were for pretty quick as we began extensive training in rapid assault techniques. You, advance! Move in on an enemy position, the speeders zipping along in excess of 200 clicks an hour. Laying down non-stop plasma, guns blazing, eliminating any resistance. You'd move in, and take ownership. Sometimes, not even unload, just pop the hatches and windows and then fully obliterate the enemy position, leave it as dust. Orchestrated chaos. I loved it. I loved all of it. The air blowing over us was a refreshing change. And with the frigid winter temperatures, we always had masks and thermal gear on. There was still a chill, obviously, but it was a lot cleaner feeling than sitting in swamp water, being eaten alive as you lost your body weight in sweat every day. Outside of the training and briefings on the enemy disposition, things were very routine. There were patrols outside the wire where we'd venture across the tundra, but the whole time we were out there, we didn't have a single firefight with hostiles or anything even resembling an enemy encounter. We ran across our fair share of refugees fleeing the inevitable conflict in the east, but that was it. Send them to the processing yards. It was all very, very routine, and I didn't mind. In my downtime, I started catching up on correspondences. I sent a few messages back home. That hollow I'd seen of my father during the Terracossi tournament was still rattling in my head. There were no replies, and after a few days, I reached out to some other members of my family. Cousins, aunts, uncles, even the ones who'd moved off world. Didn't hear back from them either, which 
wasn't too unusual. Non-priority messages could get stuck in data loops or on the transmission channels and bounce around for weeks running the hyperspace routes. Just needed to be patient. Had a few long nights with Mondi and Arkham. Drinking, chewing through regret. The things that happened on that trip to the Echoes. Murray. We all talked about him. He was a very tough loss to deal with. When I think about my time in Grey, he's always the first face I see. Even before Orto, which may seem odd given the way things shook out in the end, but we'll get to that. There was one night that stood out, though. Filled me with a sense of deja vu. We had a night off with no early morning duties, so a group of us were huddled around a fire. Kang tree was flowing. The sky was crystal clear. The nebula, the moons, they were all so bright. And that light was making the snow sparkle. It just felt magic. Then the Jedi came up. Some FNGs were asking us if we ever fought one. There was this rumor that the 79th came across a runaway Jedi during a mission right after we landed. That the LT killed him, which got some laughter from those of us who'd been there from the start. It wasn't a Jedi. There was some clone, an ARC trooper. He had a lightsaber that they pulled off some Jedi apprentice or some shit. I backed Mondi up filling in a few details along with a helping of bullshit to put the fear in. This was the type of situation where Murray would always have just the right thing to say. He'd chime in like he always did, make us laugh or annoy the piss out of us. When I realized that wasn't gonna happen, when I felt the loss of conversation more than what was being said around me. I had to get up and walk away. I was about to break. I was being eaten by memory. Staven and Murray, my two closest friends, were dead. I loved the rest of my platoon. I loved Mondi and Puenda and Tolan and Altherium, like blood. But I was missing spokes. I felt a sway in my role. I was on my way back to the barracks to clean up and hit the rack. Maybe do some more carving like the LT instructed me to do all those months ago. But I walked past the senior NCO mess, which was a ratty prefab where all the sergeants and warrant officers would get drunk and throw drinking parties that we weren't allowed to attend. Kwai, get over here. Then I heard Kyra call out to me from the shadows. He didn't sound like a friend. He was hostile, but I came. I had to. End of the day, the guy had rank. Sit down. He was on a bench outside of the prefab and there was a half-drained bottle of liquor beside him. 
I dropped down and, without asking, he handed me a tobacco stick and his lighter. I sparked and we sat there, not talking, just looking up at the nebula, a thin wisp of a cloud passing over, doing little to block out the purple behind it. I didn't want you shooting those enemy wounded. I looked over at him. That was weeks ago. It took me a second to even realize what he was talking about. He reached for the bottle and took a swig, handed it over, pulled it back, then took another. You didn't need to do that. I know, Largo. Those types. The white coats. The, the stuff. They don't care about us, Kwai. You know that? He handed the bottle over and then motioned for me to drink. They don't. It's a numbers and dots thing. It's numbers and dots. They don't spend enough time here in the dirt. The things they make us do, it kills. It kills everything. And I can't make you do it too. Those effigies, the fresh gray, you, me. We need to keep them clean as long as we can. He lit another stick and took the bottle back. Because eventually, we get stained. You know? We lose it. We don't clean up. The big war. We did things. The people who made droids, we, we killed them. The war was over and we kept killing. And they knew. The Republic knew. And it was all the same people. And now, we're doing it again. We're always doing it. But you, you're good. We have some good ones, Kwai. And we need to keep them that way. You understand? He put his hand on my shoulder and leaned in. He wasn't crying, but he looked like he was about to. Because it's not over. It's coming again. And when this one is done, it won't be over. You're gonna need to keep going. Need to keep them clean. Keep them clean, Kwai. Clean. Then he stood up, kept muttering the word clean as he ambled away. He left his bottle though, so I just sat there and took a few pulls as my stick burned away. I got back to the barracks, went inside and ignored two of my fellow troopers who were clearly caught mid-coitus. Then I curled up on my bunk, hugging the bottle as I fell asleep. It was one of those too drunk, but not so drunk you're spinning sleeps, where the very act of sleeping feels exhausting where it feels like work, and you wake up in a sweat. Then the alarms on our bracelets all sounded. It wasn't a wake-up alarm. This was an all-call. What the fuck is this? And it came in just before 0800, which was later than we normally woke up, but still total bullshit for anyone who'd spent the night drinking like I had. Still, I rolled onto my back, wiped the sweat off my forehead, and 
tuned into the hollow screen coming off my wrist. And look who was there to say good morning. My close personal friend, Commodore Pana Meldine. One year ago, I made a promise to the people of Seston Four that they would be protected from the malicious misdeeds of a small number of corrupt tyrants willing to barter lives for credits. With the Emperor's blessing, we offered food, shelter, and medical aid to anyone fleeing the territory surrounding Halfaken Bay, not only limited to the cities of Rishma, Iptisbe, Juja Bintar, and Protoss, but all communities in the region. We have welcomed millions into the Emperor's graces, and they have been resettled in numerous communities across Sestin Four. But today, today, that grace ends. Today, we end this rebellion. Today, these hives of brutality and dissent fall as we scrub the entire eastern half of the main continent clean. Then the feed cut to a split screen of the four mentioned cities as they were annihilated from orbit. A full bombardment, all of them simultaneously, the time code still ticking. This was happening in the moment. We were watching this live. A display of firepower I'd never seen the likes of before. I found out that afternoon that four individual Imperial-class Star Destroyers had come in from different sectors to ensure, to guarantee maximum devastation. And that's what it was. Devastation. Who knew how many people were dying? The four largest cities on the planet were being wiped clean, turned to rubble. It was difficult to remember this was real. Buildings that stood over two kilometers tall were being dusted. It was horrific, even if they were the enemy. I checked the feed, wondering if this was some well-orchestrated prank or phony broadcast, but it was an encrypted military personnel only broadcast on the local signal. This was it. This was happening. And after six straight minutes of plasmic ruination, the feed came back to the Commodore, who glared into the camera. He was staring through each and every trooper watching that feed. He was holding the leash. You, the trusted flag bearers of the Emperor's will, are seeing this first and will receive your deployment order shortly. Know 
that the Emperor watches over us, that we are the instrument that brings his peace to the galaxy. Long live the Empire! Has the Empire truly laid waste to three cities? How many casualties will there be? And what does this mean for the mutters of Platoon 79? That's next time on Episode 33, Thy Will Be Done. If you haven't already, make sure you follow the show so you'll never miss an episode or an update about our third season. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps grow the show and will make my contemptible harpy of a producer much happier. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and wherever you get your favorite streaming audio. Or you could listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and a full listing of Mud79's cast. If you want to reach out to me directly, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Fearless underscore Fred or email me at Mud79 at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted and written by me and Dila Velasquez, the Harpy, our producer. Sound design is by moi and final production is by Rob Johnson. I will see you next season for more Mud 79.